A very warm welcome to all of our visitors this morning. Our church looks almost full. If we had the rest of our members here, we would have a full church. Due to the pressures of the last two weeks or so, um, we were considering playing a video this morning, but that just didn't seem right, just didn't like that idea. Um, And because of these pressures, we weren't able to come up with an original sermon. However, however... This may even be better. You know, the uh, speaker director for some of our major outreach programs, Faith for Today, uh, It Is Written, Voice of Prophecy, and it goes on and on. Um, these, it's wonderful to see these men on television and listen to their the gospel message. However, to meet them personally is, an, is a special occasion, and you, you learn to know them better. We've had that occasion with Sean Boonstra and with John Bradshaw and so on. Um, it so happens that about two years ago at camp meeting here at the Redwoods, uh, Mike Tucker was a featured speaker. We got to know him a bit better. He's written a book that's been very impressive to me, Meeting Jesus in the Book of Revelation. It's a different, you know, there's many, many studies in the book of Revelation. All are exciting and it gets into the depths of the theology and so on. But Mike Tucker's written the book, Meeting Jesus in the Book of Revelation, Taking the Fear Out of the Bible's Scariest Book. That's the cover of the book. And I, I pondered this week what to do, what to do, and finally I decided, uh, let's take one of the chapters from his book and read it to you. So it's not my sermon, it's Mike Tucker's sermon. So I tell you that right up front. And I thought we would be blessed this morning with that message from Mike Tucker. This, this chapter is entitled, The One Who Forgives You. And in lieu of what we've heard this morning, all the pressures and the tragedies, um, we need to keep in mind that Jesus was here on earth. He dealt with every tragedy imaginable, only some of which are recorded in the Bible. Because you remember the last, the last verse in the book of John, it says, if everything Jesus did, the miracles, the parables, he said, would be written, the world itself could not contain the books that would, would be written. So this morning, let us ponder and let us be joyous. The one who forgives you, taking the fear out of Bible's scariest book. Revelation 14 has such an important message, we need to give it a deeper look. Of particular interest to me are verses 6 and 7, which have brought me considerable comfort during turbulent times of my life. By the way, when we heard him speak at camp meeting, he alluded again and again to the turbulent times he has had and now he is speaker director for faith for today the Lord puts these men through great trials before they arrive at these very prominent positions then the broken body and the shed blood of Christ was meant for you a sinner that is the message of Christianity The message preached by Peter, Paul, and John, and others was this, your sins can be forgiven and you can live forever. All because of the sacrifice of Jesus. You cannot save yourself no matter the amount of good works will never make you good enough for heaven. Only faith in Jesus can do that. Confess your sins, trust in Jesus, and he will save you. This, in essence, is the gospel. 
It was the message preached by the apostles. It was the theme of the early church. At that message, as that message was proclaimed, Christianity spread throughout the entire world. Revelation tells us that it is still the message God has for our planet in earth's last hour. It is a message borne by angels to bring comfort to troubled hearts. Then I saw another angel flying in midair and had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, and language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Revelation fourteen six and 7. I love the fact that when God sent a message for today, the very first thing he mentioned was the gospel. The angel carried the everlasting eternal gospel. What is the eternal gospel? Evangelion, which we call the gospel, is a Greek word that signifies, do you know what? Goodness, merriness, gladness, joyful tidings that makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing and dance and leap for joy. The gospel is neither a discussion nor a debate. It is an announcement. Islam is a sacred city, Mecca, where there is a sacred building, the Kaaba. In this building is a sacred stone that they say came down from heaven. This is probably true, for the stone is most likely a meteorite. Christians believe it was not a stone that came down from heaven, but a message, a word, a gospel. Christ died to save sinners. The eternal gospel is the message that was proclaimed by the church of the first century. In his 1942 devotional book about abundant living, E. Stanley Jones, a Methodist doctor and missionary to India, writes, The early Christians did not say in dismay, Look what the world has come to. But in delight, they said, Look what has come to the world. They saw not merely the ruin, but they saw the renouncement of sin. And ruin. They saw not merely that sin did abound, but that grace did much more abound. On the assurance, on that assurance, the pivotal of history swung from blank despair, loss of moral nerve, and fatalism to faith and confidence that at last sin had met its match. Early Christians understood and accepted the gospel. That acceptance of this message changed their lives and subsequently the world. The same message is the message of the church today that we most need. It proclaims to us, look what has come to this world. Sin has met its match. If we could be saved through human kindness or clear thinking, Jesus either would have had formed a sensitivity group and urged us to share our feelings, or he would have founded a school and asked us to have a discussion. But knowing the ways of God, the way of the world, and the persistence of human sin, he took up the cross, and he called disciples, and he gathered them and founded the first church and bade his followers to follow him down a different path to freedom at last. Ours is a message that saves. Christ died for sinners. You didn't do anything to become a sinner, you realize, Someone, did else, someone else did that for you. 
For just as though the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. From Romans 5.19. It was the disobedience of Adam that determined that you would be born with a moral tendency to sin. A pastor was teaching a Bible class to a group of students when he asked a question of a young boy. Now, Billy, he said, tell me what we must do before we can expect to be forgiven for our sins. Without hesitation, Billy replied, first we got to sin. Billy was right. Sinning comes naturally to all of us. We were born as natural sinners because of the decision of our first parents, Adam and Eve. John Newton said, I remember two things, that I'm a great sinner, but Jesus is a greater Savior. You didn't do anything to become a sinner. Someone else did that for you. Just the same, you can't do anything to save yourself. Someone else must do that for you. The last part of the passage in Romans 5 reads, So also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. From verse 19. You didn't do anything to become a sinner, and you can't do anything to be made righteous. Only Jesus, the perfect man can make you righteous. Only by faith in Jesus can you be saved, for it is by grace that you are saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, and it's not by works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We are saved through faith and the grace of God. The eternal gospel is the truth that everyone can be saved if they will call upon Jesus. We must believe that he is God in the flesh, that he bled and died for our sins, and then he was raised to life and ascended to his Father, where he now intercedes for us. We go to sleep at night, and God begins his work. You remember, he's awake all night. We wake up into a world we didn't make and into a salvation we didn't earn. Jesus paid your penalty. Jesus forgives your sins. Jesus gives you the gift of eternal life. This is the first part of the message carried by that angel we just talked about. There are only two kinds of religion in the world. You can list every ism, every cult, every religion in the world under one category. They all say, you must do this. You must do, do, do. Only Christianity says, done. Christ has done it all. This is the gospel. The gospel is not so much a demand as, as it is an offer, an offer of new life to man by the grace of God. The angel's message continues in verse 7. Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Revelation fourteen seven. First and foremost, the angel tells us that we are to receive the gospel. We must receive it. Christ died for sinners, but secondly, the angel declares that the day of judgment is at hand. God will not allow this world to continue as it is indefinitely. A day is coming when he will call all things to account. Remember the verse in the Old Testament that says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. On that day, who will be found worthy? Only those who believe the gospel, only those who trust in Jesus, those who trust in the blood of the Lamb. Christ, judgment, and trust Christ. 
Judgment is a wonderful thing because through judgment we find vindication. Our lives are covered with the blood of Jesus, so when the accuser points the finger at us, God says, I find no fault in this person. I I find no fault in him. I find no fault in her. We are covered with the robe of Christ's righteousness, and God sees nothing amiss. Our lives are vindicated, and we are assured of heaven. This is the good news of the gospel. But for those who do not trust in Christ, judgment is frightening. If you have to stand by yourself in judgment, you are liable to receive justice, not mercy. No one wants justice in the day of God's judgment. We all want grace, and we all need grace. Grace is given only to those who claim it through faith in Jesus. All others stand alone on that day, and therefore they get justice. Justice will be their ruin because they all, like us, are sinners. Why would you choose justice over grace? It doesn't make sense. That's why the gospel is such incredibly good news. God grants grace to those who give their lives to him. Grace is the very rare thing. We don't find much of it in this world. The world gives us justice, typically, not grace. How fortunate we are that even when we don't maintain a spotless life record, our final reward depends on God's grace, not on our performance. Oh, how beautiful that is. The angel proclaimed the everlasting gospel, and he warned of the day of judgment. However, contained in the angel's warning message is a solution to the problem of judgment. In the last half of verse 7, the angel encourages us to worship him who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of water, Revelation 14:7. Again, we see that heaven's solution to any problem appears to be worship. Do you feel uncertain about the future? The answer is to worship God. Are you weak in your faith? The solution is to worship. Have you lost your first love for the Lord? Are you fearful of the day of judgment? Again, the solution, according to the Bible, is to worship anyway. How are we to worship him? We are to engage in a worship that acknowledges that God is a creator God of this universe. He made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water, says the Bible. God is worthy of your praise and worship because he is your creator and your redeemer. This is the answer to the problem. You must worship God. You need to worship him. You were made for the purpose of worshiping God. You will never be whole, never be fulfilled until you discover your fulfillment, your ultimate purpose in the worship of God as creator and redeemer. This is the angel's message. It is the message of the everlasting gospel. Christ died to save sinners. It is a message of the day of judgment, a day of vindication and grace for those who trust Jesus, and a day of justice and ruin for those who do not. Not only are we to receive this message, but we are to share it as well. Preachers in evangelism are not the only ones who bear this responsibility. We are not the only ones who bear this responsibility. This is the job of the church as a whole and every member Your life should speak to these three ingredients of the message of the church today. I do not mean to imply that you should attempt to force this message on anybody. We are to proclaim the message 
the same way the members of the church of the first century proclaimed it. We are to live it. We are to live it. There are two things to do about the gospel. Believe and behave, and behave it. Our lives should proclaim the gospel with and without words. Let's repeat that. Our lives should proclaim the gospel with and without words. I saw a poster that said, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. That says it all. We are speaking of a lifestyle of evangelism. Our very lives should preach the gospel. Evangelism, a lifestyle of proclaiming the gospel by living the gospel every day. Evangelism is having a burden for the souls of men and women and accepting the responsibility for their souls ourselves. For far too long the church has viewed evangelism as an event which was to be conducted by a professional. This is the fastest way I know to kill a church. If everyone sits around and waits for professionals to do the work, we're in a lot of trouble. The gospel is to be proclaimed by the church, and you are the church. Your life must preach to all who see you eventually as we live the gospel in full view of others. Opportunities will arise when it would be appropriate to speak a word about our faith in Jesus. Allow me to be even more forward. Are there people in your life today who you know would benefit from the gospel but you have not spoken to them of Christ for fear of rejection? Who hasn't been there, may I ask? Do you have a burden for those where your friends and neighbors and relatives will spend eternity? Is that burden on your heart? Are you telling others about Christ, what Christ has done for you? In his autobiography, Just As I Am, Billy Graham tells about a conversation he had with John F. Kennedy shortly before Kennedy's election for presidency. On the way back to the Kennedy house, the president-elect stopped the car and turned to me, meaning Billy Graham, and said, Do you believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ? The president asked. I most certainly do, said Graham. Well, does my church believe it? Well, they have it in their creeds, Billy said. They don't preach it, he said. They don't tell us much about it. I'd like to know what you think, said the president. I explained what the Bible said about Christ's coming the first time, dying on the cross, lifting, rising from the dead, and then promising that he would come back again. Only then, I said, are we going to have permanent world peace. Very appropriate to tell a president. Very interesting, he said, and looking away, we'll have to talk more about this someday. And he drove away. Several years later, the two met again at the 1963 National Prayer Breakfast. I had the flu, Graham remembers. After I gave him my short talk at the meeting and he gave his, we walked out of the hotel to his car together, as was always our custom. At the curb, he turned to me. Billy, would you ride back to the White House with me? I'd like to ask you a few questions and speak with you for a few minutes. Mr. President, he said, I've got a fever. Not only am I weak, but I don't want to give this thing to you, whatever I have. Couldn't we wait and talk some other time? And it was cold, snowy day, and I was freezing. I stood there without even an overcoat on, said Graham. Of course, the president replied very graciously. 
the two men would never meet again. Later that year, Kennedy was shot dead. Graham comments his hesitation at that car door and his request haunt me still. What was on his mind, the president's mind, should I have gone with him? It was an irrecoverable moment. Have you experienced irrecoverable moments with people you know and love? I have, said Graham. As a young pastor, writes Mike Tucker, one of my members suffered a heart attack. I knew and loved this man. When I walked into the ICU intensive care unit, he was sitting up and doing much better. I attempted to encourage him by saying, oh, you're going to be out of here in no time. There was a look of fear in the man's eyes, and he responded, I don't know, Pastor, I certainly hope so. I was uncomfortable with the moment, writes Pastor Tucker, and so I backed away. I failed to speak to him of his salvation. I failed to press the issue of his confidence in Christ. I brushed it off and said, of course you'll be out of here in no time. Three hours later, the man had another heart attack and died. How I wish I had taken the opportunity to speak to him of confidence in Jesus. How I wish I had taken the time to speak to him of his soul. It was an irrecoverable moment. I have made a promise to myself never to leave a critically ill patient without speaking to them about their soul and salvation. But in reality, we're all critically ill. We are all dying and all assured of eternal death and separation from God if we are not connected to the grace of Christ. So why wouldn't we all make a promise to ourselves and to our God never to miss an opportunity to speak to someone about his soul or her soul? Why wouldn't we make the promise to live our lives in such a way that others will be drawn to the Savior, not to ourselves, but to the Savior. We have such a wonderful treasure in the gospel. What is it that prevents us from sharing it? Why do we tend to hoard it instead of proclaiming it sometimes? Luigi Tarisio was found dead one morning, was scarcely a comfort in his home. But when they went through his house, they found 246 exquisite, violins crammed into his attic. He had been collecting them all his life. The best violin in the bottom drawer of an old rickety bureau. It was the very devotion to the violin that he had robbed the world of all the music that could have been played on the violins that he had treasured for himself. So that when the greatest of his collection, a Stradivarius, was first played, it had had 147 speechless years until then. How many of Christ's people are like old Tessario? In our very love of the church, we fail to give the glad tidings to the world. In our zeal for the truth, do we forget to tell everyone about it? When will we all learn that the good news needs not just to be cherished, but needs to be told? Our all people need to hear it, that Jesus died to save sinners is not only good news, it is the best news imaginable. 
The great offer of the gospel is adventure. We're God's representatives. We were given a gospel to preach. The gospel must be shared afresh and told in new ways to every generation. The message of Revelation 14 is to be lived and shared and proclaimed. We are to tell the world of the everlasting gospel. Christ died to save sinners. We are to warn of a day of judgment, a day of grace for those who trust Christ, and a day of justice for those who do not. And we are to call the world to worship the Creator and the Redeemer. This is our message. This is our hope. If that whets your appetite for the rest of the book, it's available. Mike Tucker, Meeting Jesus in the Book of Revelation. Our closing song this morning, Jesus, What a Friend for Sinners. That fits the sermon beautifully. 187.
Eternal Father, again we come to you. We're so glad that we've heard the eternal gospel again. We're glad for this encouragement from the Bible verses we've read and studied this morning. Help us, Lord, to really see the gospel for what it is. It's the only way out of this world at the end of time to go to the heavenly country. Bless us all this week as we study further. Bring us back next week to refresh our souls and our minds with the gospel message. As we leave, we need to remember that we are entering the mission field. In Jesus' name, amen.